Holy Spirit. So Lord, we pray that you will open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your holy law. And we'll be sure to praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, I would like to start the sermon this morning by talking about the evolution of the football helmet. <laughs> and here is picture number one. If you have any interest in sports, and in particular football, you'll know that over the years, the game has radically changed. Early on, they didn't wear any helmets, and the very first helmets were something like this, uh, just a piece of leather that they would put over the head. Actually, this is a little more advanced uh, of one of the early ones because it has some ear protection and even has something that might be called a strap, a chin strap underneath to hold the helmet on. But the early helmets were simply just leather. You think of our uh, president, Gerald Ford, who played for U of M, and when he did, this is the type of helmet that he would have donned, they, they, or he would have worn. Uh, they did improve the helmet a little bit from leather to better leather. Uh, more layers of leather, a little stronger, a little more reinforcement. You began to see the picture of the winged uh, helmet that became famous again in Ann Arbor. But then they had to test these helmets to see if they would really work. And I love the fact that the three guys standing in the back are all smiling. Like, can you believe we got this guy to do this? <laughs> So helmets were tested a bit crudely, but uh, they were better than nothing. However, it was evident that more need to be had. So they went to a stronger plastic helmet when the helmets uh, were designed. I apologize that this appears to be Notre Dame, but it's the best example I could find. And then from plastic helmets to helmets with face guards over them, uh, the early face guards often were just a bar. And by the way, this is kind of the early 60s. This is when I came into the game and uh, began to wear a helmet, something like this, that didn't have a whole lot of protection. I'm going to skip over several examples of the helmet to come to what you have today, which is a feat of engineering. The modern football helmet today is designed not by those who play the game as much as those who are doctors and lawyers and engineers and the best minds they can find to hopefully make a helmet that will stop the horrendous injuries that have taken place because the helmet was so inadequate over the years. If you watch football, you're aware of all of this. You say, what does that have to do with spiritual warfare? Well, when you go to Ephesians chapter 6, we're told to take up our helmet. We are told to take up a helmet called the helmet of salvation. But here's the thing I want you to know. The helmet that you and I use in our spiritual warfare has never had to be improved. Now, the Roman helmet, much like a football helmet, uh, started out probably with leather as uh, uh, its cover or bronze and metal. And we've been looking at this picture, this next picture of the Roman soldier, because it gives us a fairly good indication of what the armor would have looked like in that day. Paul is using this as his model 
the image of a Roman soldier. Again, I remind you, he's chained to one, most likely not in full armor, but the full armor would have been seen throughout uh, Paul's day in the streets, in every Roman colony, and also in occupied territories like Jerusalem. These helmets, indeed, uh, were uh, tough metal forged, They also had a lining on the inside, a felt or sponge. Sometimes they had a hinged visor uh, that would protect the face. They often came down back on the neck with cheek uh, bone protections, plates that would come down on the side. Uh, And they were decorative as well. In fact, someone has said that the helmet was the most decorative uh, ornamental part of the entire army. Sometimes there was an emblem on the shield, but often it was the helmet. And this particular helmet has a plume that would have spoke of rank uh, or perhaps distinction with the unit the person uh, would have been serving in. So the helmet spoke a lot about this idea of being part of Rome. Also remember that this armor, when shined, when sparkling clean, would glisten in the sun and intimidate any foe. And a little turn of the head to the sun would cause it to, the sunshine to be reflected, and you've got uh, a few thousand people doing that, and you might as well just run right now because this army is going to walk over you. The purpose was decorative somewhat, but primarily It was practical, protective. Head wounds can so easily be fatal in the midst of a battle. And a good helmet can deflect many a blow. So the helmet would infuse optimism in the soldier. To know that he had the best that he could possibly have to go into the battle. And that's exactly what he's doing. Now where does Paul get this idea that the Roman helmet is the equivalent to our salvation. Well, Isaiah 59, the great warrior, the divine Messiah, is one who puts on righteousness like a breastplate, and the helmet of salvation is on his head. He puts on garments of vengeance, wraps himself in zeal like a cloak. So God Almighty, the Messiah, is pictured as a warrior coming to do battle and wearing the helmet of salvation. It's not something that he has experienced in this context. It's something that he is coming to give. He is coming with salvation on his head or as it says in the Psalms, in his wings. David, who knew what battle was all about, said in Psalm 140, O Lord, my Lord, my strong deliverer, you have covered my head in the day of battle. And so while the breastplate would protect some of the vital organs, the most important organs, it was the helmet that protected kind of the main center of thinking and feeling and of strategy and of warring, and it was indeed a vital piece. So Paul has in mind the idea of the mind. The helmet protects the thinking, the mind, the center, rational center of the warrior. 
And I'm reminded of Proverbs 23, as a person thinks in their heart, so are they. Some translation simply has, as a person thinks within, so they become. And if the devil is the one who is warring against us, and in the context of Ephesians, he is, we are told that he is the one who has planned stratagems, the wiles of the devil, the methods, the plans that he has in which to trip us up, and they are deceptive. And he is powerful, as the next verse says, there are principalities and powers organized throughout the world. And he is the prince of darkness. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the god of this world. He's not without might. And very intelligent when it comes to causing people to sin. So we need protection. We must develop our minds. Protect our minds. With the helmet that is called salvation. So what in the world does that mean? Well, I think it's important for us to understand that the word salvation has at least three tenses to it when you're speaking in the spiritual sense. Let me give them to you just briefly and then we'll spend a little bit of time looking at them. The first is that we are saved from the penalty of sin. Secondly, we are being saved from the practice or power of sin. Thirdly, we will be saved from the presence of sin. The first is justification. We are saved from the penalty of sin. There is forgiveness that comes when a person is saved. Their sins are washed away and the righteousness of Christ is attributed to them as their standing before a holy God. That's justification Sin is gone. Secondly, our, we are being saved. So the first is we have been saved. The second is we are being saved. Present tense from the practice of sin or the power of sin. We would call this the doctrine of sanctification. Where one who is truly a believer is now growing in grace and becoming more Christ-like. If you are a believer then you are in that second stage of salvation. Are you making good progress? <laughs> are you making any progress? That's the question that Paul would ask when he talks about a helmet. And then finally, there is yet a future designation of salvation. And this is when we will be saved from the very presence of sin. Oh, glorious day. Now, I know some of you would love to find a retreat where you can get away from this mad, mad world. Some of you, I've heard you talk, and I understand the emotions. We're so upset with the way things are going, with the violence and the wickedness, and what is wrong is being called right, and what is right is being called wrong, and I just want to get away from this and get alone somewhere. The only problem is, wherever you go, you take your sin with you. <laughs> you thought you would create a perfect retreat in the mountains of Montana where no one would know where you are, and you'd fish every day, and you'd sleep most of the day, and the sun would always be shining, and things would be perfect, except you're a sinner. 
and you take your sin with you. And you have not escaped the presence of sin. But when you leave this earth as a believer, you enter into the presence of God where there is no sin. And that's the final installment of your salvation. So it is right to say, if you're a Christian, I have been saved, I am being saved, I shall one day be finally, ultimately saved. You understand that? You've got to understand that, or when we talk about putting on the helmet, you're going to miss some of the most important aspects of this. So that's what Paul wants to do. Ephesians chapter 6, he says, take the helmet of salvation. And he equates the helmet with salvation, literally. So let's look at, first of all, this idea of salvation enjoyed, which is... Present possession of salvation. Don't think about the second one just yet. Focus on the first one. Present salvation enjoyed. One of the key words is this idea of assurance. Assurance is a measure of salvation. Uh, it, It is the confidence that we have this first installment of salvation that it has already been received. Charles Hodge, the great theologian, uh, who, uh, who taught so many years at Westminster, said that that which adorns and protects the Christian, which enables him to hold up his head with confidence and joy in the midst of battle, is that he is saved. In other words, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you don't have the assurance that your sins are forgiven, if you do not possess salvation then you cannot fight against the devil. (laughs) That sounds logical, but there are many religious people who are trying to do just that, to fight the battle without the armor. If I am still under condemnation, if I am still a stranger to God, then all that I would seek to do in battling with the evil one will be superfluous. So salvation then becomes your song. When God delivered the Hebrew people from the land of Egypt, in Exodus 15, Moses sang a song, and it starts out like this. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The psalmist, Psalm 13, but I trust in your unfailing love, and my heart rejoices in your salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation Whom shall I fear? Notice the focus on this great truth that I have been saved. Now it begs the question, saved from what? Doesn't it? Saved from what? And the answer is rather simple. Saved from the penalty of your own sin. For the wages of sin is death. Physical death, yes. That's why we physically die, because we're sinners. But more than that, the second death, a spiritual death, which is an eternal death, the wages of sin is death, and you and I need to be saved from our sin and its awful penalty. You say, how about saved from the wrath of God? Well, that's part of it, but 
The wrath of God, that's his strange way. That's not the normal way that God works. But because we're sinners and he's holy, wrath now has been engaged. And judgment now must, must run its course. But the beauty of the gospel is that God sent his son to take our judgment. To pay for our sin. And on the cross he did just that. So that we could be saved. And delivered from the penalty of sin. Let me ask you, do you have your helmet on? Have you been saved? I'm afraid some of you haven't. You say, Pastor Don, can you read our minds? No. Did I do something in your presence that caused you to think that I'm not a believer? No, I'm not thinking about that. I'm just thinking about the fact that we've got a large crowd. And most likely, there are people here who may become week after week who've never put on the helmet of salvation. And so you must put the helmet on. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation and I shall never be shaken. There was a man who was extremely rich. In fact, he was in the tax collecting business, and because he did so well, he was one of the most influential and wealthiest of all. He lived in the time of Christ and was hated. Everyone hated tax collectors. Tax collectors were Jews who were hired by the Roman Empire to collect taxes from the Jews. And with the power they were given, they could collect more than they needed to pay the government, and they pocketed the difference. The Jews hated them as traitors. Such was a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Remember that story? And so Zacchaeus, and we don't know what happened, but somehow he heard Jesus was coming through Jericho. By the way, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, his last stand, the final week of his life before he is crucified on Friday. And Zacchaeus wants to see him. Is there some conviction in his heart because of what he has done? We're not sure if it's there yet. Maybe. But there's certainly curiosity. And so he goes to Jericho, which is in his own district. And he wants to see Jesus. And this is a parade. The crowd is lining the streets. And Zacchaeus can't get in. I'm convinced because everyone has formed a human wall to keep him out. Zacchaeus is trying to push his way through, but no one's going to let him in. They despise this guy. So Zacchaeus climbs up a tree. There's a big debate about what kind of tree it is. Uh, the point is, he gets elevated because he's so small, he can't see Jesus, but he gets above the crowd. Jesus, walking down the street, sees him, stops, and says, come on down, I need to be a guest in your house. Jesus knew all about Zacchaeus and his need. Jesus knew all about Zacchaeus and his burden. Now, when he was invited, Jesus invited himself to have dinner with a sinner. The crowd despised him. He's gone to be the guest at a wicked man's house. And yet, Jesus went and ate a meal with Zacchaeus. As far as I know, Jesus never turned down a dinner with a sinner. 
Because that's why he came. In fact, he says that in just a moment. Now at the meal, Zacchaeus interrupts the proceedings and he says, I will give half of my wealth to the poor and if I've overcharged people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. By the way, that if is just the condition of certainty. Since I have overcharged people, I will pay them back four times. Far more than the law required, which means genuine repentance has hit his heart. If you get a covetous man to give up his goods, that's repentance. Not just to stop doing what he's been doing, but to pay back what he's done. And what does Jesus say in verse 9 of the book of Luke, chapter 19? Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. What do you mean salvation? Are you talking about yourself personally? Well, in a sense, but no, no. Salvation that I bring is now being embraced by a sinner who's notorious and hated because the salvation of God covers the worst of sin. And Zacchaeus put the helmet on. And Jesus said, some of you are upset that I've come to this man's house, but I want you to know this. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He's come to save the lost. So you'll never put your helmet on until you realize you're lost without it. Have you put the helmet of salvation on? Well then, of course, once we are saved, we have the helmet of salvation justification on. But then we begin to go through our battles and we war through life thinking that it's really up to me. I would say there's a large percentage of you who think that your acceptance before God on a regular basis is based on your performance. Now, while we need to be obedient, it's not to gain God's favor. It's because of all that he's done. It's as though we're saying thank you to him. You can do nothing to gain God's favor. But many Christians think they have to. And what a horrible life that must, live, must be to live trying to please God by your good works. You don't have your helmet on. You're saved. But you're not wearing the helmet. It's as though you set it off to the side. And you cannot do battle with the devil in your own strength. That's why it's the armor of God. That's why we're empowered by God himself. He was a young man who grew up in a religious home in Toronto, Canada. His dad was a godly man. He was called the eternity man because he talked to everyone about their eternal soul. His mother was a godly woman and prayed for young Harry every day of his life that Harry would come to faith in Jesus Christ. At the age of four, he memorized his verse, Bible verse. It happened to be the one we just read, Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And young Harry said, at the age of four, I learned two very important spiritual lessons that I'm lost and Jesus came to save me. But I wasn't saved. There were preachers who would stay in this home on a regular basis and they would come up to young Harry and say, Harry lad, are you born again? And Harry was embarrassed because he had nothing to say. He could quote scripture. The family moved to California. Harry's dad died. 
He began to live in the world as much as he could, but he also had a strong religious side because he started a Sunday school for his young mates in the neighborhood at the age of 12. Get this, at the age of 12, Harry read through the entire Bible 10 times by the age of 12. Oh, he was religious. And he had Bible knowledge. Second Timothy says, the scriptures make you wise unto salvation. And he was wise. He said, I always believed about Jesus, but I had never believed in Jesus. And there's a world of difference between the two. I knew about Jesus, but I never believed Jesus as my personal Savior. One of those preachers came from Toronto, Canada to Oakland, California, stayed with a family. It was the same one that Harry used to see before. And he knew what was coming. He wasn't surprised, but he was embarrassed when the same preacher said, Harry lad, are you born again? Have you trusted Christ? Harry was speechless. So his relatives said, oh, oh, he's teaching a Sunday school class and even preaches to his friends as though that brings salvation. And so the preacher said, go get your Bible, Harry. He got it. He said, open it and read Romans 3.19. And that's what he did. The verse says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and all the world would become guilty before God. And Harry had nothing to say. His mouth was stopped. The preacher said, I used to be a religious sinner too until God stopped my mouth and showed me Christ. The word of God did its work, and at age 14, Harry believed and gave his life to Jesus Christ. <laughs> he joined himself with a ministry that believed in what they call the holiness movement. In other words, that you can attain sinful, uh, sinless perfection. He so much wanted to follow Christ that he gave himself relentlessly to this pursuit in fasting. Anything he could do to somehow gain God's favor. He prayed away all of his sin, but it seemed to come back the very next day. Finally, after months of this, after being a Christian and still feeling that he was a sinner, he went out one night at 11 o'clock into the hills of California and prayed until 3 a.m. And some ecstasy, some religious experience took place. He said later on he realized he just wore himself out. His nerves were frazzled and his brain was tired. But he had some kind of experience and he said, God, this is you coming in. This is the spirit coming in. And he believed that he was perfectly sanctified. He said it was interesting. After that, the testimony meetings I used to go to with my group, they had them every week. People would get up and give a testimony. He said, before, I would always give a testimony, and I pointed to Jesus Christ and how the lost could find salvation in him. But now my testimony was about myself, my own holiness, and now how I had achieved sinless perfection. He said, I even prayed that God would give my dear mother this same second blessing so she could be as holy as her son. And then he fell again. And again. He was told that these evil thoughts in your heart, that's just temptation. And it's not sin to be tempted. It's only a sin when you yield. But he knew that the evil thoughts were part of the soul of his being. 
And he worked hard, as hard as anyone could to be sinlessly perfect. And before God be accepted so hard that he ended up in a mental institution. Broken, weary, a nervous wreck, a worn out body, acutely distressed mind. Someone else came in and they began to talk. They both thought each other had achieved sinless perfection. They realized that neither one had and that's the reason they were there. They began to do a study of the scriptures and they realized that they were totally wrong. Our acceptance is never based on what we do. It's always based on what Christ has done. And he found relief and peace in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And he was let go of that mental institution and he became a Bible teacher. And some of you might remember the name of Harry H. Ironside, H.A. Ironside, who wrote volumes of Bible commentaries and became a well-known preacher at the famous Moody Church for many years. And Harry put his helmet on. But some of you are still fighting without helmets. And your eyes aren't on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. And no wonder you lose the battle. And no wonder you're so depressed. And no wonder you want to quit. And no wonder some of you have thought of even taking your life. Oh, I know it's not that simple that there are real physical problems and chemical instability and all of that we battle with. But I know many Christians who have not looked to Christ and rested in his salvation so that they can have peace. Put your helmet on. There's one other final thing I want to say about the helmet, and it is this. There is not only salvation enjoyed, but there is salvation expected. And this is where we have the future prospect of all sins forgiven. Look at this verse I have on the screen for you. It's taken from 1 Thessalonians. This is the Apostle Paul actually writing, chronologically speaking, before the book to the Ephesians. Although it comes after in our New Testament order. And the Apostle Paul said that we are to put on hope as the helmet of salvation. Or the helmet of salvation is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We're not of the night, we are of the day. So let's live in a self-controlled way. Having the breastplate of righteousness, which is Jesus... And the hope of salvation. You see, there is something to look forward to in this thing called salvation. Romans 13, verse 11. Do this and understand that at the present time, the hour has come for you to rise up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. You say, I thought I got salvation when I believed. You got the first installment. But you don't have the whole thing. And our salvation is coming. And it's the hope of that salvation that keeps us going. Peter put it this way. Who through faith we are shielded by God's power until the coming of our salvation. Which will be revealed in the last day. In other words, the way you persevere in fighting is to have hope. And hope does not make us 
ashamed. We are convinced that God who began a perfect work in us, a work in us, will perfect it, will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. So be assured of this, God is not finished with you yet. You say, if I am to look to Jesus Christ and only find my acceptance in what Christ has done, what about living a godly life? Oh, that's important because those who truly know Christ want to live a godly life. But you know what? You're going to be discouraged with your lack of progress in in walking with Christ every day. So what do you do? You go to Christ. The one who cleanses. You go to Christ, the one who accepts you as you are. And you have hope that one day all of this is going to be gone. I have been saved and I will be saved. Salvation is my helmet. And the hope of salvation is also my helmet. It's coming. There's a lot you can do if you have hope. When hope dies, a person is well nigh hopeless, (laughs) filled with despair and ready to quit. How's your hope? How's your helmet? Do you have it on? Over the past few weeks, the world has been watching one of the most amazing rescue attempts ever seen. The youth soccer team from Thailand. Have you been watching the news? Twelve boys trapped in a cave for almost three weeks near Chiang Rai, which is where the Fords, our missionaries, serve. Their ages between 11 and 16. Along with them was their 25-year-old coach. I don't know all the details of why they entered in, but they entered in and the waters came up and they couldn't get out. They possessed little food. They had to drink whatever muddy water they could find. The supply of oxygen was diminishing. They were exposed to elements, not to mention the fragile condition of their mental state being in such a place. And many of them lost hope. To make matters worse, the monsoon rains were expected in a few days, and if the cave would fill up with water, there would be no hope of rescue in the future. Well, to cut to the chase, good news, and you know it, all 12 plus the coach were saved. And it was exciting. The world was compassionate and moved. The parents standing on the outside moved to tears uh, along with the crowd that was watching and all those watching uh, on TV and the Internet. The remarkable rescue was actually accomplished by the brave efforts of the Thai Navy SEALs. Added to that was a contingent from Australia. Some 20 expert scuba divers and cave explorers came. America sent a team of 30 skilled divers. and People came from all over the world. In fact, at one time there were too many divers in the cave. And that became more dangerous than almost anything else. But they were there to help. And they saved them. Great story. Saved from what? Certain death. Saved in the nick of time. But what caught my eye as I was listening this week was the fact that one of the former Thai Navy SEALs didn't make it. Did you hear about that? 
Saman Gunan. After delivering oxygen tanks to the boy in the cave, he came out, got on shore, collapsed, and died. The one bringing oxygen to others did not have enough oxygen for himself, and he gave his life to save the boys. And I thought, you don't have to go too far to see the analogy, do you? Someone giving their lives so that others would live. Salvation is all about the king of life, the prince of life dying so that others would live. But we've got to put on the helmet of salvation and believe in Christ. And it is my prayer that if you have never been saved, today you will trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Your situation is more perilous than the boys in the cave. We're talking about eternal death. And your Savior is greater than the Navy SEALs. He's God the Son. And if you trust him, you will be saved forever. And with a helmet on, you can stand against the wiles of the devil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I plead this morning for those who are here without Christ. Save them. Lord, I pray the bold prayer that you will make them miserable until they trust you. I would, have them mis- I would rather have them miserable, Lord, than happy and complacent and on their way to a crisis eternity. Open their eyes. Burden their hearts that they might seek Christ, that they might pray. And even today, say, Lord, save me, forgive me of my sin. And we know that anyone who cries out in sincerity of faith will be redeemed. And then, Lord, for those of us who are believers with our helmet on, or maybe we've taken it off, may we put it back on today. May we live our Christian life protected, our minds guarded, by the salvation that we have in Christ. And since Christ can never be lost, nor can those that he has redeemed. Give us that peace and that hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.